there's like this idea that uh, when you hold a newborn baby in your arms that all the cares of the world just disappear. And um, I think people who say that, first of all, were probably grandparents and not parents when they said it. And uh, second of all, I think they've never held a, a sick baby. Um, our baby is sick. She's three weeks old. I've now called the advice nurse three times, and it is my plan to call the advice nurse once a week for the rest of her life just to make sure everything is okay. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm holding Hazel the other day, and she starts to like cough like she can't breathe. And then and she like puke snot on me. Have you ever like seen a snot rocket and that's super gross, right? But then it just all over my arm and it's like, nope, I don't feel like the cares of the world are just disappearing right now. It's like I, I spend half my time, honestly, just when she, I'm holding her, like not breathing to make sure she's breathing. Uh, and, and like I, I know this about her, that I've probably set her up for failure because I was sick for a day and a half and I couldn't touch her or talk to her and I'm the one that got her sick, but I didn't touch her or talk to her, so I'm pretty sure she probably has daddy issues now and she'll date all the wrong guys. <laughs> so that's kind of disappointing and I've set her up to get MS because I have MS, so you know, she has the genes and she lives in the Northwest, which is pretty much, you know, raises your chances, and she's a female, so we messed her up in all kinds of ways there, and she's going to have MS someday, but even more, like, I just think about these, these world things, like, you hold her in your arms, and, and you think, like, all right, you're my responsibility now, and it starts with vaccines. Just Google, are vaccines good for babies, and tell me what you see, because you have two choices. You either vaccinate your baby, and you kill them, or you don't vaccinate your baby and everybody else's kids end up in wheelchairs. So those are kind of the two options right there. And so that's you like one website, you're killing your baby. One website, you're killing everybody else's kids. And it just goes on like that forever. And you hold her and you think, what are we going to do? Are we going to stick the needle in you? Are we you know, going to keep you alive or everybody else's kids alive? I don't know what to do about it. And then you think like she's probably going to get abducted when you turn on the news. It just seems like, I mean, at some point in her life, she's going to be kidnapped. And, and you know, she may be gone for 12 years. And then we'll get her back when she's a teenager. And, and we'll try to figure that out then and try to be good parents to our child that's been abducted for, you know, a decade and a half or whatever. And then, and I actually, I wrote these words before, uh, before I got the news about the, the shooting. But school shootings. Um, I, I like I wrote that down and it's like I, I mean if I if I can possibly keep her alive until she begins school then I have to send her to school where she's probably going to get shot I mean that's how it feels right I mean I'm kind of being a little, you know, exaggerated here, but, but it kind of feels like that, right? Like you're sending your five-year-old off saying, good luck, somebody might walk in today with an automatic rifle and end you. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like, and if she manages to survive school, well, that's, that's good, um, but then we're going to have the, the Cascadia earthquake, and, and so I just heard on NPR the other day that 50% of our schools are going to be destroyed, and they use the word pancake, so even if you can just, nobody brings a gun and nobody shoots her, she's going to be pancaked. I mean, this is terrible. And so here I am holding her like, oh, all the cares of the world are gone, but you're going to get shot or pancaked. These are your options. So that's bad. Uh, and then she's going to get older and one of her friends is going to drink and drive and you got to deal with that, right? I mean, just don't get in a car ever. That's going to be the rule. Like, just don't get in a car ever, ever, ever. Don't even get on the road. We should just keep her in a car seat. They almost make you do this now, but we should keep her in a car seat till she's 50, you know, and I'm a little older and I need her to take care of me. It's like, wow. And then like, okay, so we get her. Yeah, it's good. You graduated from high school and nobody drunken driver killed you. And, but ISIS is going to get you. I mean, obviously you're going to be taken down by a terrorist. And so you survived everything else, but now the terrorists are going to kill you and it's not going to be good. And, and then if, if the terrorists don't get you, you're going to die of cancer because it seems like everybody I know is now getting cancer, being affected by cancer, and you're doomed. You're going to get cancer. I can't imagine another, whatever, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. She's probably going to get cancer. It seems like everybody gets cancer. And then Josh told me this, Josh is in the back the other day, that he just heard the other day that by uh, 2038 or however you say the years now that we're in the 21st century, however you say the years, like 2038, uh, we're going to be out of fuel in the world. And I don't know about you, but I rely pretty heavily on fuel. Um, I don't know how to grow anything. I don't know, like, how to get anywhere without this, this like, energy, you know, coming into my life 
some way that I have no idea how it happens. And so now we might run out by 2038. And so therefore she won't eat. So if she survives the cancer and the ISIS and the shootings and the earthquakes, then, then she won't be able to eat. And, and if all just continues to go well, then probably by the end of her life, global warming will get her. And, uh, and so it's pretty bad. Uh, and so this concept, I just, I don't, I do not, I do not understand. And Bryn's with me in this. And my wife doesn't worry about anything. This is very typical me. But she said, like while she was pregnant and then we would see bad news and since Hazel's been born like what were we doing bringing a child into this world I mean what were we thinking about because look around and it just seems pretty terrible and it seems a bit hopeless and so you know I didn't even mention like if she doesn't die then I have to like help her, you know, have morals in a, in a constantly shifting moral world, and I have to try to help her, uh, you know, get through school, and, and all, I mean, there's just like a million things, and, and it does, it really does, and I'm a pretty optimistic person by nature, but when it comes to having a baby in your arms, it's, it's about the, the biggest thing to make you turn quickly into a pessimist, and I think, I really do, uh, that all of us I think maybe more than ever in the history of our country, we feel pessimistic. We feel like there's just no hope that anything's ever going to get better and we're just stuck in this mess. And they actually say that people in the Y generation are the first generation in, in the history of our country that, that prefer to look backwards instead of forwards because they think that, that what we had was better than what will come. And, and every other generation has always thought what will come will be better. You know, we've had that mentality. 20-year-olds say, we'll change the world and we'll be better. Our new 20-year-olds, you know what they say? Well, it used to be good. Too bad we were born now. I mean, you guys messed it up for them. I, don't, I mean, that's kind of what they think like. And it just seems, it just seems like everywhere we look, everywhere we look, we are bombarded by things that, that just make us feel hopeless. I mean, I'm in the Villebois uh, Facebook page, and there's tons of things there to make you feel pessimistic. But I heard that like a couple weeks ago uh, on there, they said that somebody had sliced up a dog. A human being had sliced up, killed a dog, and thrown it in the neighbor's yard. They don't know who did it. I mean, it's like just that. Like, I'm just on Facebook, you know, I'm minding my own business. I'm trying to see what's going on in the community. And, and there's a dog that's killed by a person intentionally, it seems. Like, right here, right here, like in our backyard. It's like, wow, this world, it sucks. And, you know, I mean, I just Bryn sent this, and I'll bring it back up for a third time now. But, um, I mean, I'm... Just going through the motions the other day, I'm living life, and, and uh, Bryn posts this, uh, an article that says seven to ten people are dead and 20 others are wounded during a shooting at Umqua Community College in Roseburg Thursday morning. Oregon State Police told KGW, and a grieving dad said this, our lives are shattered beyond repair. Isn't that how it feels? It feels like our country and our world and our lives at points are just simply shattered beyond repair it's never going to get better the pieces are never coming back together everything is kind of bad it just I mean I think we're still at war and the fact that we're just kind of at war and nobody even thinks about how we're at war is a pretty bad sign right well we're just at war now and we'll be at war forevermore just going to kind of be the way we are just at war a country of war forever and ever and ever and our economy's terrible and nobody can afford to rent a house in the Portland metro area it's terrible and our health seems to be going bad and relationships are deteriorating and crumbling and everything just feels bad and I think you have it in you because I am about the most optimistic person I know I always think things are okay and they're good and I do think I can change the world through the power of God but even me as I hold a baby in my arms says wow this is all messed up and it doesn't seem like it's gonna get any better at all and that's why we're doing this sermon series this sermon series is about finding hope in the midst of, of really this hopelessness that we feel and that we sense personally, nationalistically, culturally. Uh, it's about finding hope. And, and we're going to look at these 
four books in the Old Testament, the four shortest books, part of the 12 minor prophets, which are just four recorded oracles in the Old Testament, or 12 recorded oracles in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the four shortest. And, and, and the reason we had that idea is because somebody said, I don't know much about those minor prophets. And I said, I don't either. I've taken classes, but I probably just studied right before the test. And, uh, and, and I, I would like to look at them. And so I started to look at the four shortest ones because it seems like a cool place to start. Uh, and I started to see this theme. And the theme was simply that the people that the, the oracle is being given to, the prophecy is being given to, are, are, are in really bad situations. And the prophet comes along and says, in different ways, not the ways that you would expect or that you would think or that is kind of cliche, it'd all be better in the end, you know, I mean, not, not like that, but, but in like really kind of creative and unique and godly ways, says, here, here's how you can find hope in the middle of this. And so we're going to do these, these four books and, and the four shortest books. And, and, and I'll just give you the titles of the sermons um, ahead of time right now because I think it's important for you to just understand where we're going. And today, today's title is Hope Despite Suffering. And we'll look at the book of Obadiah. Uh, and, and next week we'll do Hope Despite Evil in the book of Nahum. And then we'll do Hope Despite uh, Injustice from Habakkuk. And then we'll do Hope Despite Disappointment in Haggai. And I think that those things we all feel. It's like we're suffering and there's evil and there's injustice and there's disappointment. And I thought it would get better. And I think with these minor prophets, the most minor prophets are going to say to us, in ways that maybe we're not going to expect ahead of time is, is, hey, in the midst of it, you can find hope if you have placed your hope in God. The book of Obadiah, where we're going to start, the shortest book in the Old Testament, it gives us these reasons to hope despite our suffering. And um, it's a weird book. It, in fact, just sounds like a giant judgment. Um, it doesn't sound like, like a book that you'd go to and, and, you know, feel better. Like you read some of the Psalms and, uh, and you go, wow, that makes me feel good. And, and when you first read Obadiah, you just think, wow, that sounds angry. And I'm not sure what hope is. And if you knew we were preaching on Obadiah this week, I was preaching on Obadiah and you went ahead and you read it and you knew that the topic was hope and you, you just kind of glanced and you read it quickly, you'd go, where, where is the hope in, in that book right there? But it's really important to understand the hope that the book presents, to understand kind of like all the way back to where the book starts. Because in this book, there are two groups and it's important to understand the groups if you're going to understand the hope that the book provides to us. And these two groups started way back in time. And the story goes back to two brothers, uh, brothers named Jacob and Esau. And I'm not going to tell their whole story, but let's just say this. Jacob and Esau hated each other. They were twins and they hated each other while they were still in the womb together. They fought over who was going to come out first, the Bible tells us. And, and, and so Jacob and Esau don't get along very well. Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, sells his blessing to Jacob. Bad decisions overall. And they kind of become enemies for a while. And there's a brief moment of reconciliation, but uh, that's an unimportant moment for kind of our book today. Uh, but what happens is that over time, these two family lines just become the most bitter enemies that you can imagine. Probably more bitter uh, of an enemy than any like American type mindset can fathom because we just don't have that much history. And just picture if we just kept going to the war with the same country over and over and over again. And they were called the Edomites. That was Esau's people. Jacob's family line became Israel, God's people. And the Edomites and the Israelites, they flat out hated each other. And, and it really started to kind of come to a head and get worse after the Israelites were set free from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians in a book in the Bible called Exodus. And they're set free and they're in a desert and lots of people are saying, hey, go ahead, come through our land. And they come to the Edomites and say, hey, hey, here's the deal. We were slaves long time, got free. We're out here in the wilderness. Can we just pass through your land? We won't do anything to you. We share the same blood. And the Edomites said, not happening. You're not coming through our territory. 
kind of a slap in the face, right? I mean, Saeed shows how much, uh, how much they hated each other. And so uh, the Edomites say no, and the Israelites are mad. And, and from there, it just became one battle after another battle after another battle. And over time, I mean, people are slaughtered in this conflict between the Edomites and the Israelites. And that slaughtering kind of goes both ways. We'll slaughter your people because you slaughtered our people and, and vice versa. And, and we know these types of relationships where hatred just kind of breeds hatred and it goes down the line. And that's the relationship that the Edomites and the Israelites had. Now, it's interesting, and I don't know if you'll find this interesting, but I found this interesting. Uh, the, the, perhaps the most famous Edomite was Herod, and you've heard of Herod if, if you've kind of read the Christmas story before, and it's always said that, that Herod was a Jew, and Herod was kind of a Jew, but maybe not what we're thinking of when we use the word Jew. He was actually an Edomite. He came from Esau's line, and he would have been a hater of the Israelite nation. And it's interesting because Herod uh, hears that the king of the Jews has been born, the king of the Israelites, and his response is to kill every baby that's two years and under in the entire region where this baby, who is Jesus, was supposed to have been born. And we don't know this. We don't know what Herod's intent was. He, he killed a lot of people that, to maintain his power, but maybe part of it came from just saying, look, that, that group of people will never rise up because they have done this to my family. They have done these things to my family, and this war goes back forever and ever and ever. And the kingdom of Edom makes it difficult, is just south of the territory that is occupied by the southern kingdom, was uh, occupied by the southern kingdom of Israel. So Israel had been split into two kingdoms, and Edom, the kingdom of Edom, is just south of that. It's like, take your worst enemy, think about that, and put them right next door. It's a big time problem, right? I mean, take the person that you're most scared of, most fearful of, and then move them in next door and have them live there. And uh, this is a bad situation, and tensions are always high. And when we get to the book of Obadiah, there's a couple of dates that, that smart people give for when this was written, but, but one of those dates is around 597 BC. And what's taken place just before that is that the Babylonians have just ransacked Israel, Jerusalem specifically. Uh, they, have, they have come in. They said, we're the mighty Babylonians, one of the great kingdoms in the history of the world. Not nice, great, but like great is in big and strong and powerful. They came into Jerusalem. They, they smacked the Israelites down, and, and they crushed them. And the Edomites came along and jumped right on board with the Babylonians. Said, hey, Mr. Babylonian king, we don't like them either. We will help you ransack Jerusalem. We will help you destroy Jerusalem. And not only that, but also the Edomites, not only did they take part, but they shared in the plunder. They rejoiced in Israel's fate. You can read about that in Lamentations 4.21. They acted revengefully against Israel. You can read that in Ezekiel 25.12. They took part of Israel's land. You can read that in Ezekiel 35.10, which uh, one commentator said annoyed Israel for a long time. That just seemed like very big understatement, right? That was really annoying, you know, like if Oregon got taken by another country and we we're no longer part of America and America was like, the president was like, that's kind of annoying, you know? I mean, uh, but it was pretty annoying to the Israelites that this would happen. Uh, and then they actually caught people who were trying to escape Israel. They, they, they treated them very badly, probably torturing them, and then they shipped them off into slavery. And think about being an Israelite a few years after this happened. You're living in captivity. Your land has been taken by your worst enemy. And you feel this vengefulness, this, this hatred, this hopelessness that comes from knowing that your greatest enemy, these people who are not following God in the right way, who have not served God in the way that you have, who have not had the law of God the way that you have and, and tried to be obedient to God, at least at periods in your history, these people have now taken power over you. And this is why the book of Obadiah is written. Because these people are suffering, and not only are they suffering, they're suffering what could be the worst type of suffering. They're suffering at the hands of their worst enemies. And they're sitting there going, it's over. 
They're sitting there feeling, I think, like we feel. This thing has been shattered beyond repair. This thing will never get better. We're never going to get back to our land. The Edomites will always have power over us. And this Babylonian empire is unfazable. We cannot defeat them. We will never be restored to good fortune again. You know, they probably started to question the promises that God had made to them. Look what God has allowed to happen to me. And I just can't imagine that he actually cares and that he's actually thinking about me and that he actually loves me and that he's actually going to come through because if he was, then this never would have happened. And Obadiah shows up and he gives him these words in verses one through four, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You will live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. You see, at this point, the Edomites saw themselves as as invincible. Not only did the Israelites go, well, this is hopeless. The Edomites said, well, we got this under control. There's nobody that's going to stop us now. I mean, the Babylonians were on their side. That's a pretty good check mark to have on your side. I mean, you're winning at that point. The Babylonians are on their side. They had a fresh water supply in their region, which is is abnormal um, for people in that part of the world. And so they had the fresh water that they needed. Some of their cities were surrounded by mountains. And I think Drew will put up some of these pictures for us. Um, Some of their cities were surrounded by mountains. And and that's good, right? In in old-fashioned warfare, to be surrounded and and to be, you know, kind of tucked in, it provides protection for you. Uh, The city of Petra was one of their main cities, could be entered only through a narrow ravine, and we'll have a picture of that. And so it's like, you you can't get in there, and so if you're uh, you're opposing them and you're trying to fight them, you're just coming in and you're getting killed. I mean, it's not going to work very well. And then they were a solid kingdom commercially. I mean, their their economy was good, and and people had to pass through them for a key trade market. And so this, this problem that was the Edomites... For Israel looked absolutely invincible. And I just, I'll just ask this. Do the problems that cause your suffering ever feel invincible? I mean, do you ever feel like it's never going to get better? Like it's never going to be okay? Like there's no way that you can fix it? Like nothing is going to get fixed because it's too big. Maybe if you would have fixed it right at the beginning, you would have like, you know, just not let it mushroom into what it's become or you just would have stopped it in his tracks then you would have been okay but now you're sitting in the seat in front of me and you're like this thing is huge and there's no way it's going to get better my finances my relationship uh, my kids and my relationships and how my kids are acting and I mean all these things and you're going if I just would have at the beginning but now there's no way there's no way that I can ever beat this problem, my suffering will persist forever. And I think one single word in those first four verses is super important. For those of us who feel like it's invincible, like God doesn't care, like God's not going to do anything, one word, and that is the word Yahweh. God chooses to call himself in this passage of scripture, something that he doesn't call himself all the time, by his personal and powerful name. You know how Muslim people, they, they talk to a God, they pray to a God, they worship a God called Allah? Oftentimes in Christian circles, we forget that our God actually has a name. And I think sometimes that allows for us to, for people, and hopefully not us, hopefully not you, to say, well, all gods are the same. But our God has a name too, it's not Allah. Our God's name is Yahweh. And he makes that clear going way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel. And here in this passage, in the midst of their hopelessness, God looks down. And he says, look, you have a big problem on your hands. I'm going to take care of it. Let me remind you who I am. I am Yahweh. It's a name that suggests throughout its usage in the Old Testament that God has a deep personal relationship with these people. And it's a name that suggests that God is powerful to these people. And so God shows up and he doesn't just go, well, I might be able to take care of him. He says, look, remember who I am. 
You see, when your problems feel invincible, they might be to you. But what you need to remember is that if you are a Christian, then you can turn your eyes to Yahweh, a God who is big enough and strong enough and great enough to take care of whatever problem, whatever is causing your suffering, and a God who cares enough to do something about your suffering. When we just look at God and we, we treat God like everybody kind of treats God, you know, I mean, God, he's out there, he created maybe, if you believe that, and, and he's just up there and he's kind of this figure that we don't have any real relationship with and we don't really care about that much and who doesn't, he definitely doesn't really care about us, then it's really hard to face suffering because our suffering, what causes our suffering actually is invincible. But when we serve a God who cares and a God who is powerful enough to do something and we remember that, then, then something can be done about our suffering. And so that single word, I mean, if you just, if you go home and, and maybe nothing else today, I just want you to just this, if you're a Christian, remember that you don't just serve some God out there, you serve Yahweh. And if you're not a Christian, you become a Christian because having a relationship with this God means that this God will take care of you and he will be there for you and that your problems, no matter how big they are, have somebody over them that is powerful enough to squash them like they're nothing. Remember that you serve Yahweh. Obadiah's oracle continue. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those, you eat, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. When you hear these words, you don't think grace. But these verses, in some ways, are actually a passage of grace. Well, I don't believe you. I wouldn't believe me either, but let me tell you why. You need to remember that this book is primarily written to the Israelite people. And the Israelite people, just to reiterate, are now living in exile, many of them, they've been ransacked, they've been pillaged, many of them have been killed, and here's the thing, they deserved it. The reason that God allowed that to happen is because they refused to turn back to God and to obey him and to serve him. They had rejected God, said, God, we don't really care about you. Here's the thing, God, we're your people and we'll be your people, but whatever you want us to do, not going to really happen. We're kind of doing our own thing right now and we're going to live our lives and we're going to do the stuff that, that you want us to do. You see it in so many ways. The Israelites are the ones that deserved to be punished. They deserve to be ransacked and they deserve to be terrified and their mountains deserve to have everyone cut down and slaughter because they had said, God, we have your word, we've heard from you, we have your presence, but we don't really care. We're just gonna turn our backs and do whatever we want to do. And here, I'll just let me make this clear. We all, we all deserve every piece of suffering that comes to us. The question is not whether you and I deserve suffering. We do. We do. Uh, everything that you've done wrong, you've done plenty, I know. Some of you I know pretty well, and I for sure know you've done wrong things. I mean, we've all done stupid things, and not just wrong in a biblical sense. You do things that you just know are wrong. Like, you do jerky things. You do things that are mean and cruel. You say things that you immediately know you shouldn't have said and that you can never get back. You know this. And so in some ways, we all deserve suffering. What's amazing about this passage is not that God would, would, would tear down the nation of Edom. What's amazing is that God is saying to the Israelite people, I'm not going to tear you down. Instead, I'm going to tear down the ones who have rejected me. You see, this is a story, this is a passage, this is a prophecy about grace because all of us deserve to be the Edomites. But those of us who have placed our faith in God, who have placed our hope in God, who have become Christians, to say it in a New Testament way, those of us who have become Christians will not suffer at the hands of God, but instead we will be blessed by God. And you see, there's a really important distinction that needs to be made here. Because some of us maybe need to connect with the Edomites in this passage. 
We are going to be punished by God if we do not place our faith in God. And some of us need to connect with the Israelites and go, well, I deserve punishment, but I'm glad you chose not to punish me because you sent Jesus and something we'll celebrate in communion in a few moments. You sent Jesus to die on a cross so that my sins could be paid for and now I get blessing instead of death and punishment and eternal destruction. She writes this to the Israelites and I think it's a great reminder. I think it's a wonderful reminder by God, hey, I'm gonna destroy them. And if you're an Israelite who's already kind of been destroyed, but not fully destroyed, you're going, wait a minute, we deserve that. But God's not going to do it to us. Now, I'm not going to get into this morning why God would do this to the Edomites. The point of this passage is not why God would do it to the Edomites. The point is really what God is doing for the Israelites. And, and what you need to hear, what's important, is that you can be the Israelites in the book of Obadiah if you simply say, God, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again according to Scripture, and I am placing my faith and my hope in you. You see, if you place your faith and your hope for eternal security, for, for eternal life and anything besides Jesus, then, then you fall on the side of the Edomites because you have no forgiveness for your sin. And God is looking down saying, you need a savior, you need a savior, you need a savior. And so choose to be. Everybody in this passage, the Israelites reading it and the Edomites who they probably would have heard about it later. Oh boy, we're going to get destroyed. This is not good. I mean, all of them deserve to be punished by God. But only those who, who were following God could hope in this. And it's because God makes promises to his people. In, in Genesis 12, 3, he said to the Israelites, before they were even a nation, he says, the Lord had said to Abram, the father of the Israelite nation, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God had made this promise. The Israelites had rejected God, but now God, in his incredible grace and mercy, had said, well, I'll punish these people, but I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. There's this great word in the Old Testament. If I was getting a tattoo, it would be one of my two choices, and it's the word hesed. The word hesed is a word that if you just go read the Old Testament, especially in the NIV, will often be translated loving kindness. The word means, in essence, covenant love. It's like this love that God has for his people, not because they're doing anything great, not because they've done anything special, but because they're God's people. And God is always faithful to the promises that he has made, but he makes promises to those who have chosen to enter into a relationship with him and accept his hesed love, his covenant love, his loving kindness. The New Bible Companion states this, the book brought comfort to Israel during low time and the Lord promised restoration after deep humiliation. Edom was shown as a representative entity of the ungodly powers of this world that threatened the people of God. It goes on to say, the present aggravation of believers over the pain and injustice of the world needs to be viewed through God's promises. Obadiah should give believers hope during times of suffering and revive their faith in God's certain future. At the same time, it calls them to avoid acting with the same arrogance and hostility as God's enemies. God gives no promises to those who aren't his followers. There's this idea that God just wants everybody to be happy. Matt said that last week, and he talked about how irritating that statement is. And, and there's this idea that, that God just, just, notice this, because God does love. God just loves people. God does love people, but he doesn't just love people. God will also punish people who choose to reject him. God loves people, and God has offered people a relationship with him which comes with a whole bunch of promises, like that he'll use every difficult thing for good, and that ultimately everything will be okay, and that no matter what we go through and do, he's still going to love us and care about us. But God doesn't give those promises to people who reject them. He loves them but he's still going to punish them because they, are, because they are unholy. And they deserve to be punished unless they have given themselves fully and wholly to Jesus. Obadiah continues, 
Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their troubles. These verses show, they show why God is just in punishing the Edomites. Now let me just pause and say this. I think that part of our hope comes from knowing that God is going to punish the wicked. Part of our hope comes from knowing that the evil things that happen in this world, the people who commit these evil acts such as shootings, are going to get what is coming to them. I mean, don't we go unfair, unfair, unfair? And it's not fair. Grace is not fair on one side. But the punishment will be fair. I can guarantee you this, that when that shooter down in Roseburg last week breathed his last breath, he woke up and thought that was a pretty bad idea because he had to face his maker and his maker is gonna give him what he deserves, what all of us deserve apart from Christ. And that is eternal punishment or as Obadiah says it, destruction forever. You see, part of our hope comes from knowing that this evil that exists will someday not exist and that it will be paid for. And it's paid for through Jesus or it's paid for in hell. And we're afraid to say things like this, aren't we? We go, oh, it's okay. Everybody's okay. Everybody can do what they want. It's not true. Apart from Christ, these people will get what is coming to them. Apart from Christ, you will get what's coming to you. And the book of Obadiah wants you to take hope in that. It's not okay what these evil people have done to you. You've all been hurt, right, by people. And it's not okay. It's not okay for people to hurt you. And God isn't up there going, fine, oh, okay, I just want to love you. I just want those people to be happy. Because if being happy is hurting or abusing or being mean to you or, or being violent towards you, then God doesn't just want these people to be happy. God wants these people to get what is coming to them and he has given them the option to accept Jesus and be forgiven for what they have done. But if they don't, they will get what is coming to them. That's the truth. Obadiah looks at the Israelites and says, look, I get it. I mean, they, they did horrible things to you. They waited at your gates while you tried to run from dying and then they killed you or they captured you and punished you a little and then sold you into safe slavery. And they will get what they deserve. We must find hope. Jesus even says this. He says, like, or Paul says this. Paul says this. Don't, don't try to find revenge because revenge is the Lord's. It doesn't say don't fight a, try to find revenge because God just wants everybody to be happy and because God just loves it says, because revenge is the Lord's. The revenge will take place for everybody that is apart from Christ that has done evil on this planet. And so we who are in Christ take hope in knowing that when somebody says, stand up and tell me if you're a Christian and then puts a bullet in their heads, that they are gonna get what is coming to them. That's what Obadiah wants you to know. And it continues. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done it, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your head, just as you have drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and, excuse me, they will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will, the, will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. 
and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelites... Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land of Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up from Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdoms. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Here's what the final verses say. Those who are God's people will see a reversal of their suffering. The phrase day of the Lord is a dual meaning theological term in the Bible. Uh, It means partly the the time when Israel will be blessed and everything will be good for Israel. But it more fully means the time when Jesus returns and and Jesus sets everything right on the earth. 2 Peter 3.10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You see, Jesus is going to come back, and what will take place on that day is is revenge on the evil, but a reversal of fortunes for those who are in Christ in all of their sufferings. You see, everything that has been a suffering in the lives of those who are Christians will, will be replaced by something that is a blessing. The Israelites were like, we've been displaced from our land. Things are bad. Our land has been taken. We've been moved away from where God is and where God's told us to be. And God says, you will be back and everything will be right for you. And in doing so, he says to us, on that day, the day of the Lord, when the kingdom is God's, everything will be set right for you. I just want to read you a famous passage of scripture called the Beatitudes. And and the Beatitudes, I think, suggests a reversal of fortunes for those of us who are in Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in his most lengthy, in-depth sermon, it says, I want you to know something about my kingdom. In my kingdom, the suffering that you have will be reversed. And you will have eternal joy and blessing life in the kingdom of heaven. If you're suffering and you're a Christian, then what you need to know is that eventually all of that suffering will be replaced by something incredibly awesome. All of that suffering will be replaced by blessing and mercy and grace and love and goodness. Just know this. I mean, think about things that you struggle with. Well, I struggle with, with not having enough money. Jesus says, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. I mean, think about, think about just saying, well, I'm, I'm kind of a sad person. I'm just sad, and I don't know why. I struggle with depression or lack of joy. Jesus, Jesus says, in heaven... There will be no more sorrow. Or think about if you have like an illness or a, a chronic kind of injury and, and it just keeps going on and you think, this is my suffering. My suffering is because I always hurt and it just won't go away. And, and you know what Jesus says? Jesus says in heaven there will be no more pain. Or, or what if your suffering is because you've lost family members and people have died or you're facing death because you're sick and, and you're going, wow, this death thing is scary and it's no good, it's terrible. Jesus says, in heaven, there will be no more death. You see, for Christians, everything that causes our suffering will be reversed. Not just kind of glossed over. Let's not pretend that. Not just like, eh, yeah, it's a little bit better. Like, reversed, fixed, 180. It'll be turned all the way around, and you will be blessed for eternity. I wrote three stories down, and I, I just... I'm just going to tell one of these stories today um, because I, I just want to, you go, well, that's, that's all nice and that'll happen someday, but, but, but is this God, this Yahweh, does he really care now about my situation? And, and he does. And, and, and I know that in part because we see 
miracles, as we've spent three weeks talking about. And we see God do things in people's lives now that suggest that he does care. The guy named John that I just learned about this week, um, I watched a video about John, and his mom committed suicide at a young age. And he said, he said these words, I couldn't handle it. That's hopelessness, right? Like, that is hopelessness. Like, I can't handle it. That's how you feel. We don't go, we never say I'm hopeless. Nobody says that because it sounds pathetic, I think. Um, and, and also because we don't use the word hopeless very often, right? We say, I can't handle this. I can't take this anymore. I don't think I can keep doing this. And that's how John felt. And, then, and this is crazy, but he says his dad and him had a great relationship, and then his dad gets remarried, and all of a sudden his dad stops paying attention to him like completely. And so he starts using drugs, and he said he was using, this is also crazy, meth, cocaine, ecstasy, and acid at the same time. And he was running, he would join a gang where he was running drugs uh, across the state. And then he said this again, I didn't care if I lived. That's hopelessness, right? I mean, isn't that hopelessness? So he becomes a Christian, and you think everything is better, right? I mean, fixed. Right then and there, everything's better. He becomes a Christian. But then he makes this friend after he becomes a Christian, and the friend commits suicide. And John is like sent into this tumble because he's going, did I not do enough? Was I not a good enough Christian? I, I, what happened here? And so he starts using again, and he... He's like about to overdose and he cries out to God, don't let me go, I'll do anything. And he said he stopped using drugs immediately, which doesn't always happen. And, and God gave him the power to quit drugs is what he says. And then he uses these words that I think are super important. He says, I was completely restored from my past. And I don't know if God will do that in the short term for you, I can't stand up here and promise a million dollars if you say, God, I'm at my wit's end and the suffering is too much. I can't promise that all your relationships will get better. I can't promise that your kid will not be shot when they go to school. But I can promise that if you place your faith in Jesus, that God has promised that eventually everything will be reversed when it comes to your suffering. It may not be in this life, but it may be in eternity, but it will be reversed. And that's enough reason to hope. You see, we, we find hope. This is, this is what Obadiah says. We find hope in our suffering from remembering that God is a God of love and power. And we find it in knowing that what causes suffering will eventually end. It's not going to last forever. It will eventually end. And we remember that our suffering will be reversed when Jesus returns. Or in the short term, if we're so lucky. The point is that we take hope despite suffering because we see that there will be, I think, an end to it. And there will only be an end to it if we place our faith in Jesus because, because Jesus loves us and cares about us and is powerful enough to do something about it. And so what I want from you what I want from you is to recognize that because, if you're a Christian, because of the God that you serve, there will be an end to this suffering. And I think the thing that makes suffering so terrible is feeling like it will never end. When you're sick, you feel like you've never been well before. Right? Isn't that kind of the case? Like, you don't remember. I, at least I'm this way. I'm kind of a weenie when it comes to being sick. But, but when I'm sick, I don't remember what being well felt like. And I'm pretty certain every time I'm dying. Like, I mean, that's it for me. I, I can't think. I can't fathom. I get this way when I'm hungry. I, I, I just like, I, I, it's never going to end. I'm going to be hungry forever, so I might as well go to bed and just kind of curl up in a ball and let it be over because I'm super hungry right now. And that's, but that is what makes suffering so terrible. Thinking that it will never end. But the book of Obadiah says, it says it will end. It will end, and it will end because God cares and God is powerful, and he will eventually destroy that which causes the suffering, and he will reverse your fortunes for eternity if you're in him. So I want you 
to go home this week, and I want you just to identify any areas that you, that you feel hopeless. I don't know what it is. It might be something that you think we would call stupid. I have things like that. But I want you to identify the areas that you call, uh, that you feel hopeless, and you say, I just can't do this anymore. And then I just want you to go, wait a minute. God cares about this. God is powerful enough to do something about this. God will end this, and God will reverse my fortune someday. Will you pray with me, Lord? We thank you that you're not up there looking down, going, good luck. But you are in heaven looking down, and you care. And you are powerful. You are good. I pray, Lord, for every person who sits in front of me who will listen online that is not a Christian. And I pray that they would heed the words of Obadiah and that they would recognize that currently they are on the side of the Edomites. And Lord, they might go, well, that's not fair. God's mean or whatever, but I, you're God. I don't think you're mean, but you can be whatever you want. And so I pray that they would make no more excuses and that they would give you their lives. God, I, as I think about non-Christian people, it's crazy to think, Lord, that there are, it seems, millions of people who have not given you their lives because they have faced suffering. And the opposite should be true. They should give you their lives, Lord, because, because there is suffering and because they want that suffering to eventually be reversed. So I pray, God, for all who don't know you, who don't love you, whose hope is in other things besides you, who haven't placed their faith in the fact that you died on a cross 2,000 years ago and rose again for our sins, I pray that they would give their lives to you, Lord. And for those of us who are Christians, I pray that you would provide us with incredible hope. And every time we suffer, God, whether it's an internal suffering or an something on the outside that's causing it, or it's societal, and we're just looking, going, this is terrible. I pray, Lord, that we would remember that you are a God who loves and cares about us, that that which causes suffering will have its end. And God, that you will set things right in our lives, if not on this planet, then for eternity, Lord. God, I pray specifically for those who came in here today, for those who listen online, Lord, that really in the depths of their soul feel hopeless. And they're just looking at a specific area of life and just going, it's not gonna get any better. It's invincible. This is invincible. And they're sad and they're hurting and they're broken and they're worried and they're scared and they just came here this morning hopeless, pessimistic. I pray that these words in a special way, a different way, a unique way would sink into their hearts, their souls and that they would turn their eyes to you. They would turn their eyes, Lord, to the maker of the mountains they cannot climb. Thank you for all of your love and all of your grace, all of your hope. We pray these things because of who you are, Yahweh, God who loves us. Amen.